first off, the U.S. hit a, an interesting milestone in 2019 um, because that was the first year that we were number one in the world for anxiety. Wow. Um, number one in the world? In, in the, the world. world. In the world. And by the wow. way, in 2019, the worldwide anxiety levels hit a new high. Okay. So we're in an, a worldwide epidemic of anxiety and the U.S. is in first place. And that was before COVID. Welcome to the Good Life Coach Podcast. I am your host, Michelle Lamoureux. The intention of this show is to awaken you to your fullest potential. Join me each week for inspiring interviews to elevate an area of your life, as well as interviews with women entrepreneurs who are creating success on their own terms. Each episode provides actionable tips to guide you to design a life you love. Hey there, it's Michelle, and welcome back to the show. Joining us today is Dr. Allison Escalante, who is a board-certified pediatrician and an adjunct professor of pediatrics at Rush University. She writes on the science of human performance for Forbes and on life and the culture of anxiety for psychology today. She's given a very interesting talk, a TEDx talk called The Parenting Should Storm. And today we're going to go into what a should storm is, and she's going to teach us ways to manage anxiety. Welcome, Allison. Well, thank you so much for having me on. I'm so excited to have you on today. I mean, anxiety is at an all-time high. Uh, parents are already hard enough on themselves. And I know you have some expertise that I'm hoping can help alleviate some of that anxiety and the pressure that we as parents put on ourselves and also on our children. And for those listening who don't have kids, there's value in this too, because uh, there's a three-step approach that Allison has that I'm well, that she'll be sharing today that anyone can use. So before we get into some of the data and the stats about what's going on in the world right now, I'm wondering if you could explain, just introduce yourself briefly, how long have you been a pediatrician and what led you to wanting to do a TED, TEDx talk called The Parenting Should Storm? Yeah, so I've been a pediatrician long enough that I'm starting to lose track a little bit. Um, I think I've been in practice 13, 14 years, mm -hmm. um, but it, it really started right after I went into practice because I came out of doing like a pediatric ICU rotation at University of Chicago and just seeing, you know, some of the most intense stuff and then started out in regular pediatric practice um, and, you know, parents were bringing kids in with a, a few hours of runny nose, really worried or extremely worried about um, this little, you know, developmental thing they were doing or that little developmental thing. And I was just astonished by the amount of anxiety um, in, in what were basically perfectly healthy children with loving, competent parents. Mm. Um, and then I noticed something else. I noticed that all of my older partners, doctors who've been in practice 15, 20 years, they'd kind of walk around the halls between patients and say, oh my gosh, the anxiety just gets worse every year. Mm. Like the parents are so anxious about everything. And that was more than a decade ago. Wow. Um, and I just, one thing I noticed was not only was the anxiety very high, 
But many of the challenges that would come up with kids were directly related to that anxiety in their parents. And so at first, I started out trying to answer the question parents were asking me, which is, well, do you have a good book? Like, how should I manage my child's behavior? How should I do this? How should I do that? And as I sort of read everything I could find and tried to find this book, I I looked up one day and I said, you know, I think the change needs to start with with us. I think the parents, we need, you know, we set the tone. Um, And in the middle of all this, of course, I'd had my first child and experienced anxiety like I'd never had before. Mm -hmm. Um, I think we all find that out as moms, just how intense that really is once you become a mother. It's interesting because I was going to ask you, I know that you have kids because we're both recording from our homes today and you're Mm -hmm. doing your Zoom pediatric consults. Um, And so I was curious if when you became a mom, if that somehow gave you a new lens on things. So can you just speak a little bit more to, you know, pre-kids to when you had kids and again, what it taught you and, and what it led you to start teaching and helping support other parents around? I think I've always tried to have a real um, sense of connection and empathy, but there's only so much you can truly understand until you're in it yourself. And I kind of knew that I I watched people and I saw this level of anxiety and I found it, you know, just to be a lot, but I kept thinking, well, I'm sure I'll understand better once I'm a mother. Hmm. Um, But I honestly thought that going into becoming a mother because I was a pediatrician, I would go in sort of a little ahead. Like yeah. I'd, I'd know more, I'd be able to handle it better. Um, I would have more of a perspective, so I wouldn't feel the same anxiety. And in fact, it was quite the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, it was like being plunged into a tidal wave. And the anxiety was, and I think you know this, it, it was biological. It was something I just... I couldn't use all of my mental techniques. It was just there and it was in your body and you're, you're just noticing every sound your child makes. And the difference between pediatricians and regular parents is not that we are less anxious or we're not. It's that we worry about rare stuff you've never heard of. Mm. And we don't worry about the stuff that most parents worry about. Yeah. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. And actually I read a blog post on your website um, where the Basically, the gist of it was that doctors worry about parents who don't worry versus the ones who come in super confident with their first kid. (laughs) Can you talk a little bit about this, too? I mean, because there's like you're saying, a lot of anxiety to some degree is normal and and to be expected. It's just when it takes over. So I'm just curious of like based on that article, sort of maybe the healthy level of anxiety or the natural, what you, to use your word, the biological, uh, you know, it's just in you, in your body to just be paying attention and to work. Gosh, I love, I love that you brought that up because as we start this conversation, we're sort of referring to anxiety as though it's a problem. And the current levels of anxiety in our culture are, and I have some obviously ideas to help with that, but a certain amount of anxiety is a very healthy and necessary thing. Mm -hmm. Um, I was just explaining that to one of my little patients today um, as we talked about her getting a COVID test. And she said, doctor, if mommy has to take me to the emergency room, if I start having trouble breathing, 
how will I know if I'm having trouble breathing or if I'm just breathing hard because I'm worried? <laughs> and I said, oh, that's you know, so cute. oh my gosh. And I said, oh, honey, that's such, first of all, you're so insightful. <laughs> totally. And and secondly, like, so we talked about some ways to tell the difference, but then I just pointed out like, you know, the conversation that me and mommy just had is a very scary conversation, right? Mm-hmm. And if you didn't feel some worry about this, like you wouldn't be human. It's a normal and it's a good thing to feel a little bit of worry about this so that you remember to tell mommy if you're feeling something different, you know? Um, so yeah, new parents need anxiety. It's an energy. It helps us bond with the baby. It helps us take on the extremely challenging task of learning how to tell what these nonverbal little creatures are trying to tell us about mm-hmm. themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's very appropriate. And I, and I mean that um, we pediatricians get really freaked out when we meet a first time family who's totally just chill and not worried at all about their child. Um, if they haven't noticed something that they have a question about, like that is uh, concerning. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, it makes sense. And I'm wondering, you know, so to the degree that we we know from statistics, I mean, and we'll get into the whole COVID thing, which has just ratcheted up the level of anxiety to a very unusual place. But generally speaking, in terms of anxiety and being there and culturally, uh, especially here in the United States, what do you see is the reason you talked about 10 years ago, having, you know, seasons, doctor, doctors who had been practicing longer than you had, you know, when you just started saying, gosh, every year the anxiety level goes up. You know, I think about communities and, you know, just the way culturally families were part of a ecosystem where maybe there was a grandparent living in the house or nearby, there was family all together and we're more uh, often now more remote from a sense of community and family. Do you think that's what is contributing or what is your sense of why there's so much more anxiety now with, with parents? Oh my gosh. So many reasons. Um, Number one, um, Yes, this is the first culture ever where parents have been expected to, and and often mothers by themselves in a home um, on maternity leave, managing a baby all by themselves um, for days. Um, It was much more typical for people to have a family network and someone to pass the baby to. Um, We, you know, there's structural issues um, in the United States in particular. Mothers have higher stress levels in the U.S. than in any other uh, wealthy Western country because we we don't really have um, very effective parent leave policies. Um, we don't support leave for mothers. Um, you know, mothers are really only guaranteed six weeks, and we definitely don't support it for fathers. Um, even though it's quite clear that uh, parent leave for both parents has a substantial impact on the well-being of the child and the parents, mm-hmm. um, fathers and mothers, uh, but fathers have almost uh, equal levels of postpartum anxiety and depression as mothers do. Mm. And good parent leave for dads makes a big difference there. Um, and in countries where they have it, you see a substantially different level of stress and anxiety in, in the parents as well as better well-being in the children. So that's a structural issue, but then there's a whole other thing. And this is before we even get to the should storm. And the whole other thing is that 
our understanding of how to raise children has shifted dramatically in the last three generations. Mm-hmm. Um, when I was a kid, I, uh, I think about this a lot lately because we just got a puppy and we're learning how to train a puppy. And it's all, it's really lovely. It's all positive reinforcement and treats and just ignoring bad behavior. And the <laughs> puppy's doing great. She's such a sweet, sweet baby. But um, I remember being a child and, you know, uh, training our dog with a choke collar mm-hmm. and being expected to choke the dog and being confused and, and, uh, and, and bothered by it, but also feeling like I needed to toughen up and do it because that's what the trainer said, right? So when I was a kid, we tr- we choked our dogs and we spanked our kids, mm-hmm. and uh, everybody I knew was you know spanked a lot, and that was a different way of re- raising kids where the idea was the parent says it, the kid must do it, and if they mm-hmm. don't do it, that's defiance or dereliction of duty, and and corporal punishment is appropriate, or at the minimum, um, you know, uh, negative or shaming words, and. Um, as we learned more about child development and we learned more about what really helps people thrive, we, we've dramatically changed what we're doing. And I, I talk with parents about this every day. Look, what you're doing is really radically different and difficult because you're trying to raise kids with this eye to child development, with this eye to connection and um, sort of helping them learn to regulate their own emotions but you weren't raised that way. Yeah. And, and maybe in the younger parents, their parents were trying, but it was, it, you know, it was a very, very confusing and, and it's been confusing for people for a long time. Mm-hmm. So the advice people get from grandparents is totally out of date. Okay. And that's the problem is that um, the consent, that old idea of like everybody living together and helping raise the child that works really great in cultures where there's a consensus across generations about how to do this. Mm. But now that like uh, parents are constantly having to call me and say, well, you know, my mom says to give the baby water, but I thought we're not supposed to do that. No, you're not supposed to do that. Don't Mm. give the baby water, you know? Um, And, and, and all that, all that advice, right? My mom Mm. wants to use baby powder on the baby's diaper rash. No, no, don't spray baby powder. That can cause (laughs) lung problems, right? Like let's stick with diaper cream, you know? And Mm -hmm. so it's just, it's hard because the knowledge grandma and grandpa have is, is different than what parents are trying to do right now. Mm. And some of it can be good in terms of maybe nutrition and food and some of it, I'm just saying, and some of it, like you said, with the baby powder or the products that were prevalent at the time that they used and trusted, like you said, we've learned are not such a good idea. And I wonder, um, Allison, how much just having access to Google and the information on the internet just also has contributed to the level of anxiety too. Because I think I, and I know you must see this in your practice where people have co- consulted with Dr. Google before they've come to see you as Dr. Escalante. And then you're having conversations where maybe their anxiety has gone up because now they've gone to some worst case scenario. And I have to say, I remember when my daughter was really li- little, I was like looking something up once and my husband's like, no. And I remember thinking he's so right. Like, you never find anything good. It's always something horrible when you Google it. (laughs) So I'm just curious if you think that's contributed in some way as well. Yeah. When people are my patients specifically, 
Um, when we establish that beginning of the relationship, we set a rule. I say no Googling. Mm-hmm. Um, because, smart. Yeah. And, and I give them websites because there is reliable information out there and I want people to be able to look stuff up. Mm-hmm. Um, so just for your listeners, um, healthychildren.org. Okay. That's healthychildren.org. That is the American Academy of Pediatrics website. Okay. And that's full of reliable information. And they have an app for parents too called KidsDoc where you can do a symptom checker to see if it's an emergency or not. Um, but yeah, I had this conversation yesterday because, and, and it's so cute. The mom was like, I get a lot of sheepish moms and dads who are like, I know you said not to Google, but I Googled <laughs> and, and I'm like, okay, so what'd you get? Did you get cancer or brain tumor? Right. Right. And she's like, I got brain tumor. I'm uh-huh. like, I know it's always <laughs> cancer or brain tumor, right? Like, you know, yeah. um, and then we talked about what it really was and, and how her delightful baby was just fine. Mm. But, um, you know, we, we want parents to be noticing what's going on with their kids. And I think it's normal and appropriate to look for information. I just want people to, to know the sources. But, you know, the whole issue of um, frightening information or misinformation on the Internet is out of control lately, mm. you know. Um, and I, I've. I've written several articles about how to differentiate um, misinformation from true information. You know, mm-hmm. um, I, I always tell parents in general, good medical information or good parenting information equips and the lousiness, the lousy stuff causes intense anxiety. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, let's talk about anxiety. Can you give us some statistics? And I'm not, and, and let's talk maybe pre-COVID too, because I know those numbers have jumped. But you know, can you yeah. give us some statistics about what anxiety, how you know, what the prevalence of it, it is right now? And then also, how does it show up for children? Because um, yeah. I've read some stuff that's actually really pretty disturbing in terms of the level of anxiety that children are dealing with right now. Oh, yeah. Well, so first off, um, the U.S. um, hit uh, an interesting milestone in 2019 um, because that was the first year that we were number one in the world um, for anxiety. Um, Number one in the world? In in the the world. world. In the world. And by the way, in 2019, the worldwide anxiety levels hit a new high. Mm. Okay. So we're in an epi- a worldwide epidemic of anxiety and the U.S. is in first place. And that was before COVID. Wow. And I do not have the latest statistics at my, num- my fingertips for mm-hmm. after COVID because that's all being worked on. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, but certainly it's, it's most certainly gone up after COVID, which is, again, appropriate. As I said, it's very appropriate to feel mm-hmm. some anxiety right now. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, and um, but you know, remember what's interesting is there's useful anxiety and then there's the anxiety that starts to get on top of us and crush us, right? So useful anxiety, here's a good example, COVID. Useful anxiety means you're going to follow public health guidance. You're going to wear your mask. Mm -hmm. You're going to social distance. If you do Thanksgiving with grandma and you guys don't live together, maybe you wear masks the whole time, right? You know, and maybe you eat briefly in totally separate rooms. So you're not breathing each other's airs, right? That would be um, very helpful anxiety because it helps you stay safe, right? Unhelpful is the one where you end up curled up in your bed, rocking (laughs) in a ball because, and you know, even that a little of that's okay here and there as we process our feelings, right? Um, 
So numbers wise, um, I mean, one of the most important statistics in my opinion is that um, about 90% of people in generation Z, so these are young adults and kids, mm -hmm. um, felt emotional or physical symptoms of anxiety or depression associated with stress on a regular basis. Mm. Um, and that was again, pre COVID. Um, and then also pre COVID 80% of women reported in one study that they were suffering from significant anxiety at least once a week. Wow. Um, so it's just everywhere. Kids are also peaking in terms of higher numbers than ever. Pre COVID, we were getting up to about 30% of kids, 30%. That's one out of three wow. were getting diagnosed with an anxiety disorder by the age of 18. Wow. I mean, and that was pre-COVID. That's just astonishing. Um, yeah. And so, and that leads to your question about what anxiety looks sure. like in yeah. kids. Sure, yeah. does it show up? Yeah. Well, it's different in different ages. Um, but I think what's really important is that um, based on current neuroscience, um, we, we really misunderstand what anxiety is. Mm -hmm. We think anxiety is kind of like a feeling and maybe a psychological thing where you kind of think anxious thoughts, but really anxiety comes from a deeper, older system in our bodies. And it has to do with um, basically the fight or flight response. Mm -hmm. So anxiety really happens at a body level and it's really about moving your body to safety. So in kids, it makes total sense because in kids, what do you see in an anxious kid? You see wiggles, you see lots of wiggles or you see resistance, um, where, uh, they don't want to go to this place or they don't want to do that thing. And what it's really all about is trying to get your body to a place that you feel safe and secure. Um, so yeah, you see a lot of like hyperactive behavior in kids you will also see um, fighting behavior as well, because you say fighting um, or biting. Well, probably either one. Right? <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know, it, it's the fight or flight response, right? Mm -hmm. So your kid's more likely to say something sassy to you, uh, um, mm -hmm. right? Because they're anxious, mm -hmm. um, and we see that as naughty, bad behavior. But um, and I'm not saying hitting hitting certainly not okay in my house, but understanding that your kid might be hitting because they're overwhelmed and anxious mm. versus because they have like a moral problem is a very different way of looking at things. Mm. Um, and then finally, um, the, uh, the other side of anxiety is flight. So you'll see kids withdrawing, you'll see them, you know, kind of avoiding things they find stressful, avoiding that homework. That's so overwhelming. Right. Mm. Um, and so understanding that this is a physical thing and that it's, um, it's an old, old mechanism, um, that has to do with getting to safety. Um, I think changes a lot because we try to talk people out of anxiety. Um, but that, that's not always very effective. Sometimes it helps, but especially, but especially with kids, just trying to talk them out of their anxiety all the time is mm -hmm. just, if you've ever tried when your kid is anxious, it's, it's pretty hard. Right. Right. Because they're looking to be validated and maybe reassured because the mind likes certainty, right? And so if there's some level of uncertainty or fear, then they're not able to receive, you know, 
the feedback of how to get out of it right away until maybe they can calm their, is it the parasympathetic nervous system? Like their body needs to be able to just ground down. Is that true? That's exactly right. So anxiety is a manifestation of the sympathetic nervous system or the fight or flight. And uh, when the parasympathetic or the vagus nerve becomes more active, um, that's where you move into your social nervous system. So that's why when parents are at their best, when we're not overwhelmed, we tend to respond to our kids' anxiety with soothing voices, Mm. comfort, maybe hugs. And what does that do? That stimulates the vagus nerve or the parasympathetic nervous system. So it grounds you down into that state of safety Mm. where you can become receptive. Mm. Um, But the problem is so often as parents, we're so much under pressure um, that we can't get to that place for our kids and everybody just kind of blows up at each other. Yeah. And that's where the should storm comes in. <laughs> okay, well, good. I, this is a perfect transition because you wrote, we live in a culture of constant criticism haunted by the idea that one mistake can alter our child's destiny forever. No pressure, <laughs> but it's true, right? This is So this is kind of what led you, I believe, to realizing this should storm that we're living in. So can you explain what a should storm is and this how it, how this culture of constant criticism and fear of making a mistake has contributed to this and, you know, why you believe it's such an issue? Well, this goes back to early in practice when I was looking at all these anxious parents and looking at myself and saying, what is wrong with us? And indeed, that was kind of what my older partners were implying. Like these parents get more anxious all the time. They need to get a perspective like, oh my gosh, stop obsessing. And the more I looked at it, the more I realized I think we need to stop blaming the parents Mm. because the parents were trying to do their best for their kids and they were being buffeted by a culture, an internet, friends, neighbors, random people in the grocery store Mm. that were telling them what they should be doing with their kids. Mm. You know, um, I, I have so many stories of women taking a walk in the neighborhood and a random person neighbor walks up and says, wow, are you feeding your child at all? She's so skinny. Right. Mm. Or, um, my, uh, my favorite was, uh, you know, my husband taking my son to the grocery store, um, when I was at work one day and, um, my son was four months old and it's like 90 degrees outside and my husband didn't put socks on him. But he's like babbling to his kid. You know, our little guy's talking back. My husband's showing him vegetables. They're being, I'm sure, adorable. And a woman walks up to him and says, where are his socks? Uh, Don't you know babies need socks? He'll get frostbite, right? And and he was was totally astonished because, and and it was funny because I'm like, dude, that happens to moms all the time. Um, But what was really, you know. (laughs) <laughs> or they'll well, well, touch your child without being asked. Uh, like I had a guy once try to reach in and touch my baby. Oh my I'm gosh. like, you're a stranger. Do not come near the stroller. Like, no. Uh, right. And it's so funny because that's a whole other thing because I actually think that's a good thing about humans that we all want to touch and hug babies. We just yeah. need to also remember our what our moms told us about keeping our hands to ourselves. No, it's true. I'm just thinking of all the things moms go through, but you're right. You're talking more about the actual criticism versus touching the baby. It might be like, right. Why isn't the baby wearing a hat? It's too cold out or 
Yeah. And, and so of course the criticism was ridiculous because like, no, that's babies don't suddenly get frostbite without socks on. Um, but, um, what was more interesting was when I started sharing that story, people came out of the woodwork. Apparently the socks in target and Walmart thing is it's a thing. People are (laughs) (laughs) like random strangers are constantly coming up to parents and criticizing their child's sock status. So, but um, yeah, but this is, this is it. And so what, what do you do? You, you, you wonder about something with your child. You want to learn how to do it well, you know, you can't just do what your parents did because we don't do it that way anymore. So you go to look it up. So what do you do? You Google. And suddenly you get all these articles that say either follow these two easy steps and everything will be fine. And you follow the steps and then you feel like a failure because it doesn't work. Or uh, it says, if you don't do it this way, then this terrible thing will happen to your child and they'll be messed up for life. Mm -hmm. And then you say, well, I read this on the internet, but that stressed me out. So you go to your Facebook group or you go to your friends and you put it out there for parent advice. And then you get bombarded with 18 Mm -hmm. different opinions. um, And at least several of them will include, oh, no, 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 don't do it that way. Um, Or I had a friend, neighbor, relations, cousin on Pluto who had this Mm -hmm. bad thing happen when their parents did that. Mm -hmm. And before you know it, people are completely overwhelmed. Um, And then there's a lot of like family's great, but family's also a, a source of a great deal of criticism. Mm. So most of the, the most painful source of stress for a lot of parents is, um, is what their mom said, you know? And so I get a lot of grandma visits and grandpa visits where people come in because grandma or grandpa are telling the parents that they're doing it wrong and they are so distraught and they need to know if the baby's all right. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, and it's not, I'm not blaming grandma and grandpa because our, you know, our, we, we couldn't do this without grandma and grandpa. We, we are so appreciative of them in our household. But the point is we have to realize how much pressure parents are under and we have to, we have to be a little gentle. So the should storm is this, you should do this. You should do that. You should definitely not do that other thing. And you're probably going to mess your kid up, but you should work as hard as you possibly can to avoid that. And it is a storm of shoulds and it buffets parents from every direction so that they don't really often have a safe place. Mm. So then think about that. Parents are under a a threat from this culture really all the time. And then they're supposed to be the calm center of this for their kids. It's a really untenable situation. Yeah. It's, and it creates maybe, you know, analysis paralysis it's like now afraid to either make a decision or then if they do make the decision, they're going to be feeling bad if it, you know, they didn't listen to one of the shows that told them to do it the opposite way. Like it's a constant, it's like, then it becomes self-criticism, right? There's the internal, there's the external criticism, which then becomes internal criticism. You're absolutely right. Yeah. You know, and so many mothers have told me like, I just, I feel like I can't measure up. I feel like I'm failing all the time. I look at my child and I think, please, God, don't let me mess this child up. But I think I'm messing this child up. Mm. What what a terrible situation because these are loving, engaged parents Mm. who are trying to do their best for their kids. And they somehow have the sense that what they love most, they're doing worst. Mm. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's incredibly, it's incredibly challenging. Well, um, I'm, I know you have a three-step approach that I really want to ask you about. Take us through, if you don't mind, the three-step um, approach that and and how you developed this. I know that it's been working, and this is what your TEDx talk was on, um, and I really loved it. I actually was thinking that you're going to get into what it is, but that very first one, um, I find I do often when I need to ground. So could you take us yes. into the study? I do. I'm like, oh, my, I, I did it the other day. My daughter's like, why are you doing that? I'm like, I'm just relaxing. So right, right. Yeah, so uh, this is kind of funny because um, I had been studying this problem for about almost 10 years. And when I came up with the three-step method, it was really one of those intuitive pops. It just kind of like I'd been so struggling to come up with an idea, you know, how can we help? How can we practically approach parenting? And I'm sitting um, with a friend of mine, and she's just she's just sharing the should storm. Um, you know, I I want to be breastfeeding. I know if I don't breastfeed, my child's IQ will be damaged, and um, I. But it really hurts, and my nipples are cracked and bleeding. And the lactation s- consultant said I should do this, and should I try this nipple shield, and should I do formula, and should I do this, or should I do that, should I do this. And it was just a flood of shoulds um, and and anxiety. And I remember just saying to her, um, like, whoa, 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 hold on, <laughs> like, you know? And, and these three steps came out. Um, and then she kind of had this big reaction to it. And I thought, well, that's interesting. And then a month later, when I saw her again, she said, my life has changed. Like, I've been using this since you told me to do this. And like, I, before all I had was anxiety and now I have confidence. And I was astonished. And I thought, okay, hold on. Maybe I have something here. Mm -hmm. Um, And then I went through and kind of backtacked all the science that had gone into it and realized, whoa, this is a really quick way to use a lot of good science about human performance. Um, and, and that's why now, um, as soon as I shared it in the TEDx talk, um, not to build the dramatic tension too much, but, um, people started saying, whoa, that's not just for parenting. Like, um, we need to use that in doctoring. We need to use that, um, for our stress management in our professional organization. I just shared this with an architecture firm who wanted to use the method for, um, you know, the leadership so that the leadership could, um, mentor more effectively. So, okay, here you go. Okay. Basically, (laughs) (laughs) we're all under intense pressure. And most of the time when we feel anxiety, we have one of two things going on inside. Either we're being driven by a should, you should do this, right? Or we're being driven by feeling unsure. And unsure is incredibly problematic because if you're unsure in the should storm, a culture that tells you, you should know how to do this and you should Mm -hmm. do it right. um, Unsure is a terrible feeling. Mm -hmm. So then we look for a should to guide us, Mm -hmm. right? And the shoulds are making us miserable, but it's better than feeling uncertain. Mm -hmm. So as soon as we feel that, then um, what we want to do is avoid just acting on the should, because as soon as we do that, we are not interacting with the child. We're interacting with the should in our head. 
And so what we're doing is we're, we're parenting in an anxious and disconnected way. And this does not help our kids grow. So whenever you feel a should sigh, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. take a deep breath into your body and let it out long and slow. So many moms have told me, oh, I can do that. I sigh at my kids all day anyway. Mm -hmm. I have to say, I love a good sigh. I know it sounds so silly, (sighs) but even well before I had kids, I remember I would leave, uh, I worked in corporate and I would get in the elevator and just without even thinking, I'd get on and I'd go, (sighs) it'd just be like, and I just, it's just a way of just grounding and just releasing. It's so good. Absolutely. And it's really cool because it, it, the long, slow out breath in particular turns on your vagus nerve. So it, it, it basically takes you out of fight or flight into that social connected nervous system. And it does this because you cannot sigh if you are being actively chased by a lion. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. You can't, you can't do it. And you also can't do it if you're holding your breath, hiding from a lion, hopefully hoping they won't hear you. Right. Cause those are the two kinds of stress breathing we have. We either breathe hard and fast or we hold our breath, but sighing sends a message to the nervous system. You can't possibly be in danger right now because you're sighing. Mm-hmm. So it really helps. And I find when I'm really stressed, if I just sigh three times in a row, I feel a big difference. Mm. Um, I've also liked to teach people the stealth side for meetings. Um, yeah, so you can't see so it go, ah, <laughs> out loud. Right, right? because, yeah. yeah, otherwise everyone's like, oh God, she's always sighing at everyone, right? Right, <laughs> so funny. But yeah, so yeah, you sigh and then see. see well, your how child. do you do the stealth sigh? How do you do it quietly? Oh, the stealth sigh? Yeah. Oh, it's just really, um, it's easier to show like on video, but you just basically take that deep breath in. And then um, it, it, I find I stealth sigh much more effectively if I smile. Okay. So when I smile and let my breath out really slowly through a smile, you don't get that sighing sound, but you still get the effect of having the long, slow out breath. Okay. That's great. Okay. So number two was C. Yes. Right. So after you've sighed, see, see the situation. See your child, you know, see their body language, see if they look like they're going to cry, see if they look like they're happy, see if their fists are all balled up and they're, you know, looking angry. Um, see is, is just a super fast mindfulness step. Um, and remember, mindfulness is where we, we, we kind of accept the situation we're in without trying to change it right away. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's getting into where you're at with your kid and really seeing your kid instead of trying to enforce a should on them. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think C only works effectively if you've already sighed because otherwise you're, mm-hmm. you're not, you're not calm. You're not connected. Mm-hmm. And you'll get really pushed right out of that moment of the now quickly. If you're not grounded at all, if you haven't grounded and relaxed your body, you can't just stay in the sea. I I think that's my experience. I couldn't agree with you more. Yeah. Um, I think we all, one of the funny things about this method is you'll find um, if you try it, you find that you try to then um, it's a super short method mm-hmm. um, on purpose because parents don't have time to do 27 steps, right? They, they need to be able to do something really quick right now mm-hmm. while the kid is throwing stuff. <laughs> but, uh, 
but even so we still try to short circuit it. We try to skip steps. Right. And, um, it is so easy to go right into action without remembering to truly sigh and then really see before we do anything, you know? That's great. And the, and the third step? So only after you've sighed and see, that's when you start. And this is where I feel like it gets like lots of fun because um, you're going to just start something different. Maybe start listening. Um, maybe start, um, giving your child a hug instead of correcting them, you know, maybe start thinking about what might be appropriate here, um, instead of just acting, um, start something, you know, um, start nothing, start the wrong thing because it, when you start the wrong thing, like, let's say you get it wrong. Um, that very often triggers that uh, that self guilt, the the mm-hmm. self uh, shaming uh, of the shoulds. So you immediately go, "Oh, I should have done it that way." Um, but we know what to do when we feel a should, mm-hmm. right? We sigh, see, and start again. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I love so much about start is you're coming now to the situation, to your child, grounded and engaged, and. Start means to do it right. You have to let go Mm. of trying to get it right. You have to let go of the shoulds. Mm -hmm. You have to let go of this whole idea that you've got to know what to do and do it a certain way. Mm -hmm. And instead it puts you into relationship. You know, you're going to, you're going to start the best you can. And when you do do something that works, then you get to file that away as a win. Um, And and people start building skills and confidence pretty quickly this way. Mm. Uh, but they also start modeling for their child mm-hmm. an approach that is flexible and creative instead of rigid. Allison, is there anything I didn't ask that you want to add to this conversation? Yeah, I think we've talked about a lot of really interesting stuff today. Um I think the main thing is just to remember that anxiety is a good thing. And then it becomes a problem for us when it gets dysregulated. Mm -hmm. And um, I'm not at all claiming that these three steps can solve everything, um, but they do give us a start. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I just like to help people remember that just like in elementary school, you know, what did we, what did we learn to do when you um, get your clothes on fire, right? You stop, drop, and roll. <laughs> right. So <laughs> what do you do when you face the should storm? You sigh, see, and start. Um, and I do have one last comment, which is our kids are living in the should storm too. Mm-hmm. You know, they're a, even if they aren't exposed to it before school age, which I would argue they are, mm-hmm. as soon as they hit school age, they experience um, testing um, at intensive levels starting in kindergarten. Mm. So they constantly get the message that they're being evaluated and measured. Mm. Um, and they need us to help them. Um, understand how to manage that kind of pressure. I would argue we need to just take the pressure off them. But given that that we can't always do that, um, modeling for our kids, two things. One, hey, this is hard for me. I'm feeling it. Mm 
And two, this is what I'm doing to try to stay connected and figure things out. Um, it makes space for them. It makes space for them to be kids. It makes space for them to make mistakes. Yeah. Yeah. This has been a beautiful conversation and one that I think is going to leave people with some tools, which I always love being able to offer. And also just some, a different perspective on how to be thinking about anxiety in general. So thank you so much. Where can I direct people to learn more about you and your work? Oh, well, you know, the easiest place is uh, shouldstorm.com, which connects to all of my social media and my articles. Um, Or if shouldstorm.com is too hard, you can just type in my name, alisonescalante.com. That's perfect. And I'll have everything in the show notes to make it easy for people. But thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much. This is Michelle Lamoureux, and you've been listening to the Good Life Coach Podcast. Now, remember, all of the show notes can be found over at thegoodlifecoach.com. Now, I have one favor before you sign off today. If you've benefited from any of the shows that you've listened to and really enjoyed the content, would you be kind enough to take just one minute and rate and review the show over on Apple Podcasts? It's how I know what's resonating with you, and also it helps other women find the show. Thank you as always for tuning in and I look forward to reconnecting next Wednesday. Bye for now.